Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to bring in Oliver Rennick. He is our Bloomberg Stocks reporter, and he joins us uh, right now. I want to just get a lay of the land. There are a bunch of deals that came out. What's catching your eye today? I think that uh, today, at least from the uh, market's perspective, is just it's it's quiet still. It's low volume. It is a sort of standstill that it's kind of gripped uh, equity markets, at least when you look at uh, risk assets. I think what's probably a little bit more interesting is sort of your neck of the woods, which is what's happening with bonds, what's happening with yields. And I think that also spells a story for stocks as well because in the past week there's a little bit of reversals our story that our team put out on friday that kind of took the week and recap and that i think sets the stage for this week is largely about some of the rotations that have occurred within the market this has largely been a story of the past year which is changing perspectives on what's going to work what's going to work based on washington what's going to work based on economic growth um right now i've got a few interesting notes in my inbox that are sort of uh homing in on the idea of a potential value stock rebound based on higher rates and what happens when the rest of the market starts to view higher rates and the likelihood of that beginning to happen what kind of companies do you go in and they are a little bit of different types of companies well and i think that a lot of the uh muted volatility that we're seeing in markets is partly because we're just getting so much noise from washington dc uh and the latest uh, i want to uh have some insight from porter bibb uh, who's a managing partner at media tech capital partners uh, which is based in new york and and porter bibb is known as being the first public of Rolling Stone magazine reporter. Um, we uh, over the weekend, President Trump diverted attention away from his tax plan and put it toward whether or not NFL players stand for the national anthem. He uh, absolutely lambasted some for kneeling in protest of the uh, pervasive racial discrimination in the country. He was saying that that's disgraceful. Uh, As a result, the teams kneeled even more. What's your take on this? And at what point are advertisers going to have to weigh in on this sort of odd controversy that well, President Trump on, on top of uh, criticizing the activists uh, who were kneeling, he also criticized the refer- referees for taming down the game and taking away some of the violent hits that he demonstrated by banging his fists together in a typical Trumpian manner. But the reality is, after he said the ratings of the NFL are way, way down, Last year, 2016, was the highest NFL rating in for the season in history. And except for the two hurricane weekends of Harvey and Irma, they're running ahead right now of last year. So it looks like NFL ratings are, and viewership is going to be very, very strong and not way, way down. Advertisers are sitting tight because two-thirds or more of the NFL's most advocate, uh, strongest fans are basically um, in the Trump camp in terms of uh, activism uh, mixing with with their their sports. And uh, advertisers are going to stay very silent, but pay attention to the ratings. And the ratings, as I suggested, are holding. So NFL advertising is going to be very buoyant this year. Is your sense that uh, viewership will go down? 
I don't think so. I think it's likely. Uh, yesterday, uh, they had a, an all-time record uh, rating uh, viewership uh, because everybody wanted to see what was going to happen with the, with the kneelings. It started uh, with the Jaguars and Ravens in London on Saturday, Sunday morning and continued um, right through the evening. Um, the, the ratings are, are holding, and advertisers respect the ratings more than they respect politics. You know, one thing that has struck me is that a number of billionaire donors to President Trump, who are also owners of these teams, have come out against him, uh, albeit not necessarily uh, in some cases as strongly as someone would hope. I mean, at what point uh, will they have to take more aggressive stances? Will they will this sort of widen uh, the divide between some of his base, at least the wealthier part of his base? Well, the NFL is a business and, and these owners, even the ones who are very, very close to Trump and some of them who have given millions of dollars to Trump, um, really are protecting their business more than anything else. And they, they have said their pieces. Um, only one, uh, Mike Brown, the Cincinnati Bengals owner, was the only one uh, among all of the NFL owners who came out in support of the comments that Trump had made on Friday and then again on Saturday and Sunday. So I think the, 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 they, they want to respect the value of their team and the profitability that, that uh, the team can engender. And it's a team sport. They have to hold everybody together or else the whole business falls apart. And it's not likely to happen anytime soon. What's the history of advertisers actually getting political? They really have stayed away. I mean, you had just a week ago, Jemiah Hill at uh, ESPN um, was sanctioned by tr- uh, by Trump's uh, uh, communications director and um, said she should be fired. Uh, advertisers did not flinch. They didn't budge from ESPN and ESPN just moved on. Well, I, the reason why I ask that is because I remember during the Super Bowl, there were there were a couple of controversial advertisements that actually did That's right. get political and make yeah. messages uh, that, that you know, took a stand. It's, it's more difficult for the advertiser to cross over the line than it is for team owners or players or even the NFL. Roger Goodell came out uh, very strongly against the comments and the, and the, the substance of what uh, the president said about uh, the activist kneeling. Uh, but it's still a business, and both sides, the advertisers, the NFL, and the team owners have to make a profit or else the whole system falls apart. It's just amazing. As I was seeing on, on Twitter, it's sort of the rival teams uh, were coming together. The fans were coming together with this united <laughs> cause. So yeah. it's sort of uh, uh, amazing what um, what President Trump can do to bring unity. Uh, Porter Bibb, thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners in New York. And of course, our thanks to Oliver Rennick, Bloomberg Stocks reporter. And uh, as we were saying, a lot of this controversy took attention away from the tax plan that Republicans are pulling together. Over the weekend, GOP congressmen announced a uh, draft of a tax plan that has a pretty aggressive schedule to get through Congress and get into practice. I want to bring in Laura Davison, Capitol Hill reporter for Bloomberg BNA. And Laura, can you just give us an overview of what the main tenets are that are being proposed? 
Yes, so this plan is expected to be officially released later this week, and sort of the headline numbers are that the corporate rate would drop to 20%, you know, and it's at 35% now, and there would be a special rate for pass-through entities, so that's everything from, you know, doctors, practices, law firms, private equity funds, that would have a special rate of 25%. Uh, Those taxes are almost at 40% now, so these are the big numbers, And, and the whole point of this is to get support from Republicans in Congress to buy onto this plan. Uh, what it won't have, however, is sort of what, how it's going to be paid for. You know, what are the deductions, the credits, the other tax breaks that they're going to get rid of uh, in order to make those, those steep rate cuts? So in other words, this is really a corporate tax cut rather than a tax reform plan. Correct. You know, that's still to be seen a little bit. And they're also playing around with whether these changes will be temporary or be be permanent. Um, You know, there's some rules in the Senate that they have to to work with to make sure all the numbers add up. Um, But right now, the emphasis is on sort of what are the rate reductions going to be and on the tax cut side of it. If they're able to get a lot of buy-in and they're able to kind of move the process quickly, they they may be able to do some simplification type reforms and overall cleaning up the tax code. Uh, but they're on a really tight, tight schedule to do that. And if there's any hiccups in the process, more of the emphasis will shift to the tax cut side versus the reform side. So just how tight is the schedule going forward? Um, basically, every single card needs to fall exactly where it needs to for this to, to move by the end of the year. Uh, you know, they they have to get this through the House, get it through committee. The plan is to go through regular order. So unlike the health care bill, um, on both sides, it will go through committee, get approved, go to the House floor, get approved, and then the same side over on the Senate. Um, and we're already seeing some divisions between the House and the Senate. Um, Orrin Hatch, who's the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, has said, look, we're just not going to rubber stamp anything that the House does. We want to have our own input, shape the plan ourselves, and that can really slow down the process. Laura, how much will President Trump himself pose an obstacle simply because he's come out uh, and sort of cast a little bit of shade on the proposal for not getting down to the 15 percent rate that he was hoping for? That's that's the big question, right, because the president has been a little bit unpredictable in some of these policy discussions. You know, he's really pushed for a 15 percent rate. Um, that looks like that's not going to happen. And there's been a lot of recognition among lawmakers that that was probably unrealistic. Um, you know, but as we get closer to the end of the year, especially if health care falls through, especially if some of these other um, priorities uh, appear to be elusive to Republicans, there will be a push to, to get this done, sort of no matter what that rate is. What about the Democrats? Do you expect there to be any support for the plan in its current incarnation, at least uh, the rough sense that we've gotten? Will there be any support from the Democrats? Um, that is, uh, on the House side, there will probably be very limited House uh, support from for Democrats. On the Senate side, though, you know, Trump is courting um, some uh, some Democrats who are from states where he won. So Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, um, Joe Manchin uh, from from West Virginia. You know, he's been taking them out as he's going to give speeches in their states. And, you know, we'll, we'll see, but they've sort of left the door open to um, to be available. Uh, potentially to vote for this, especially if the bill gets moderated in the Senate, which it which it typically does. That's the case for pretty much any sort of legislation. Um, you know, you could see some pressure on them to, to vote yes. And Republicans may be really heavily relying on their vote, especially if, you know, they only have two members on their side that they can lose in the Senate for this bill to pass. So what's the likelihood that the this proposal will end up bleeding into uh, household tax rates as well? 
So there, there is much talk about also reducing rates on the on the individual side as well. You know, the the top rate for individuals may be going down to about thirty percent. You know, that's from about thirty nine percent where it is now. Um, though, though, what they're looking at is really doing big reductions on the the mid to lower income side of the scale because um, there's been some criticisms that look this is just a tax cut for the wealthy. So they're looking at you know doubling the standard deduction so fewer people would have to itemize. It'd be simpler for them. Um, you know, they could also, you know, lower that bottom rate to about 10% and, and have that include more people. And that would be very helpful for, um, especially sort of this populist message of, uh, you know, how tax relief for, for middle and lower income people. Although it could potentially affect the wealthier people in New York and New Jersey particularly hard, right? Exactly. Well, so the the one pay for that they seem to have sort of agreed on is that they're going to get rid of that state and local tax deduction. So in States where there are low taxes, you know, like think Tennessee, that's not as big of a deal. But in New York, New Jersey, where you have state and local tax rates that exceed, you know, 10 percent in some cases, uh, that would be a huge tax increase. And, you know, that's not only people in New York City, that's people in upstate New York, too, that also face high taxes. So uh, and what about business leaders? Are they excited about this so far? Or they're kind of holding their uh, judgment until more details roll out. There's a lot of uh, sort of, um, you know, sort of hoping for the best, but anticipating that it might not be as much as they've wanted. You know, I think after seeing the way healthcare went and, you know, they're, they're really pushing for, for rates to go as low as possible, uh, but no one's really making any um, strategic decisions based on what this plan could. Everyone's sort of in a wait-and-see mode at the moment. Laura Davison, thank you so much for this uh, great insight. Laura Davison is Capitol Hill reporter for Bloomberg BNA, talking about the uh, tax plan that is expected to be unveiled later uh, this week. Well, we are starting to talk a little bit more concretely about a possible tax plan coming out of Congress. Here to give us a sense of just how much optimism there is that there will be something passed and it will give a boost to stock markets beyond where they are now is John Augustine. He's chief investment officer of Huntington National Bank, which oversees about $17.5 billion in Columbus, Ohio. John, always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Thanks for coming in. What's your impression? Does the plan that was unveiled over the weekend by GOP uh, congressman give you hope that there will be some sort of plan uh, passed in the near term that will be a boon to stocks. Yeah. Good morning, Lisa. And the tax package is represented, we would say, 50-50 odds of some implementation. It'll likely be, in our view, targeted implementation around corporate tax rates, we would say. If we're looking at the end of this year into the fourth quarter, it seems like that was the emphasis of the administration. It seems like whatever comes out will likely be targeted versus broad-based reform. Well, how much of that is already baked into valuations, right? I mean, some people would say, well, if we do get tax reform or tax changes, uh, then you will expect bond yields to go up just because growth expectations would go up and stock prices would also go up. But would they or is it all baked in? Uh, The interesting thing to us is we thought this would play out the entire second half of this year, and the Fed would actually be more aggressive in the face of economic agenda coming at it. Now, the Fed seems to have kind of played its hand. We do wonder about PE multiples around that. However, what we would say is maybe it's worth $5 a share to the S&P next year, which could have an appreciable impact on stocks next year as this earnings recovery continues. 
You know, we were talking before uh, the segment and you were saying that you still do like stocks over bonds, but you really did not sound particularly bullish. You were saying that uh, earnings expectations for next year seem like they're probably too high. Um, what are your what are your highest convictions right now amid such a dearth of information and, and ongoing uncertainty out of Washington? Yeah. So October is going to be a very interesting month. You know, our equity teams are going to be look at the, looking at those earnings because they're low expectations now and getting lower expectations. You mean because for of the earnings hurricanes. in the third quarter? Yeah, in general. And who all is that going to affect and who all might not it affect, but says it affected them. That's something our equity teams are going to be looking at. Now, a valuation perspective, you know, the P.E. of the S&P is about 20, 21 times trailing. We had thought that would come down to the 18 or 19 range by year end with a more aggressive Fed. Now we're starting to question that. So our point here is maybe there's a little bit more support for stocks going into the end of this year that we stay at the 2,500, 2,600 level. However, we don't see what our equity team and Randy Hare do not see is multiple expansion, so now it's more about earnings. So that's where, when you, when we discussed it, that's where some hesitancy came. We're probably done with multiple expansion in this cycle, but maybe we get to keep the multiple. We thought they would pull back. It's something on our mind. So that sort of speaks to some of the stocks that you're looking at in particular as high conviction. Microsoft, Crown Castle International, ExxonMobil. These aren't exactly undervalued, but they're sort of uh, mainstays that will keep their value. Yeah, their the consistence. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're kind of ruler stocks. And, and those stocks, represent they're represented in all three of our internal portfolios that we do for clients. That's what caught our attention. Um, there's conviction around those from a growth team, a core team, and an and a dividend income team. And so when we see that consistency, we like it. And we obviously like that for our customers. So one other thing that you were talking about is that you cannot recommend to your clients to invest in treasuries right now with a 10-year yield at about two and a quarter, uh, given the fact that inflation rates and growth rates are about 1.9%. What, how high would yields have to go for you to say, you know what, take some profits off the table, go back into bonds? Uh, our fixed income team at Huntington, the number is about two six right now. So, the so it's ten, not that much. No, the ten year has been in a two one percent to two six percent range, really since the election, and it's had trouble obviously holding over two two point six percent. So without some big adjustments to inflation or economic expectations, two six. You know, as unbelievable as that may be, 2.6 seems to be a place, a demarcation for the bond market right now. So this is interesting because there was actually a J.P. Morgan uh, analyst note out this morning saying that they didn't expect uh, that there was room for benchmark yields to rise before it really affected equities. They said there was room about uh, for, for yields to rise about 100 to 150 basis points, 1, 1% to 1.5% uh, percentage points. This seems like it's much less than that before it starts affecting equities. Well, you asked about valuations, so to speak, or wanting to go into bonds. It's when they get out of the range. That's when we start to look at them. Now, equity valuations, yeah, maybe maybe it's the next round number at 3%. That's what we all thought would be this year, and we were trying to base the future on 3%. It looks like the bond market is going to be foiled once again this year to get to 3%. So 2.6 is a, a, an area we're watching to see if it can get above. 
The expectations are it only goes to 2.4 this year. Three, maybe that affects stock market valuations. So we're operating in these ranges because we're on such low numbers in the bond market is now the Fed's trying to normalize. Maybe. And <laughs> inflation is, is trying to come back up. You, you know, I have to wonder on the macroeconomic sphere, I mean, we just see so many alarming headlines about nuking each other and whatever else. I mean, at what point do you care about this stuff? If we would have invested on those over the past, let's say starting with Brexit, we'd be about 0 for 4 for our customers trying to handicap political events and other headline events. So what we mean by that is the global economy's picked up some speed in the summer. The U.S. seems to be staying around 2%. Profit growth has recovered. Inflation's staying calm. Any changes to that environment would make us reconsider allocations. We're just not seeing any changes to that environment right now. Right. So you have to look at the actual data. You have to look at the actual numbers. But as far as uh, Twitter wars or uh, even ongoing you know, military threats, not The headlines not haven't affected any of those as, as, as much as they catch our attention, as bad as they could be. They just haven't caught the market's attention because they don't seem to affect the global economy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks John, for having me. John Augustine is Chief Investment Officer of Huntington National Bank, which oversees about $17.5 billion uh, and is based in Columbus, Ohio. And he was talking about how a lot of his uh, clients still have a lot of cash and uh, that you just can't justify pouring that cash into something that has a real yield of nearly nothing at a time of relatively good economic expansion. Uh, definitely an interesting conversation. pick up on what John was talking about with respect to Apple shares being among the most actively traded today and being down for a fourth day. This comes as uh, reports are coming in pretty much uh, everywhere from everywhere that new orders and new purchases of the latest iPhone edition are below expectations. Alex Webb joins us now. He's a tech reporter for Bloomberg News and joins us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. So Alex, uh, can we talk a little bit about just the color that we've been hearing about the disappointing orders. How significant is this and why is there some kind of uh, decline in the desire for this phone? So you've got to take into account here that there are two phones coming out. We've got the iPhone 8, which is already on sale, and then the iPhone 10 is coming in about six weeks' time. And that suggests that a lot of people might be waiting for the second phone. The wrinkle that we've heard this morning is that Apple has told suppliers, um, this is a report from Digitimes in, in um, Asia, that um, it's told suppliers to reduce their the, the components they're going to deliver for the iPhone 10. That could just be um, inventory management. Apple doesn't want to have millions of phones sitting around and not be able to get them to market quickly enough. And, but it could also suggest they're wary about the um, levels of demand for the iPhone 10. Um, but I don't think we want to read too much into the iPhone 8 because it could just be it could actually in some ways be good news for Apple. People are going to go for the later, more expensive phone instead. Well, Alex, can you uh, give a little bit more color about the suppliers that you were talking about that have been asked to dial back the production of the components? Who are they and how much do they rely on Apple for their business? So this report didn't name suppliers. I think it's probably on their on their part. It's an, uh, an effort to you know protect their sources, I would imagine. But um, you see the the big names um, like Honhai, um, Pegasus. 
Megatron. These guys are the, the contract manufacturers who actually make the iPhone. Then going deeper into the supply chain, there are hundreds of companies who have little widgets in the iPhone. Everything from companies in Germany like um, like Osram. Actually, Osram does like LEDs for the Apple Watch. And then uh, in you have Philips doing perhaps uh, the light on the back of your phone. Then you have Bosch doing your uh, sensors which detect whether the phone's moving. It's a vastly, vastly complex supply chain. There are some smaller companies um, who get you know, about half their revenue from Apple. They are trying very hard to diversify. Companies um, like uh, Dialogue Semiconductor, for instance, they, they have a huge exposure to Apple. And um, the, 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 the extent to which they're able to stay in each subsequent generation of the phone is therefore very important for them. You know, there was a good story written by Alex Webb. I think you've heard of him. Um, <laughs> about this one company in particular, Universal Display Corp., uh, that really focuses on this high-definition screen uh, that will be used in the new iPhone and how much it's benefiting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so Universal Display is actually a company which owns almost all of the intellectual property or a lot of the significant intellectual property related to organic light-emitting diodes. This is the new display, which is going to be in the iPhone X. Um, they've been toiling away on this stuff for almost 20, about 20 years. And finally, um, set for a big payday, they've really seen a, a spike in the stock over the past year as the reporting gradually seeps out that Apple's likely to have or was likely to have um, OLED in the new, in the new phone. Um, and there are a number of other companies as well who have been betting on technology for years. Think about the 3D sensor in the next iPhone. There are companies who, they used to make 3D sensors for bombs, for tracking, um, you know, you, bombs um, for Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever it might be. And um, now that technology, the 3D sensing technology, is going into, into phones. So that's a huge potentially uh, growth driver for them. Alex, I wonder how much the innovation in an iPhone comes from the company dreaming up what it potentially could look like versus suppliers coming up to them and saying, look at this incredible feature, this new technology that we have. Maybe if you incorporate it into your phone, it will be more uh, appealing and uh, we, could provide, we could provide it all to you, of course. I, I think it is very much it is that way around. Yes, the you know Apple is very very good at taking technologies and, and fine tuning them and making them perhaps work better than some of the other competitors. But my my predecessor on the Apple beat, Adam Satriano, wrote a really great story perhaps eighteen months ago where he looked at the relative um, R and D spend of Apple versus its suppliers. Now while Apple's R and D spend has increased significantly, it's more than doubled over the past five years, they proportionately they spend a lot less than than their biggest suppliers, and that's because the the spend is done by the suppliers to fight to get into the phone, and that then delivers them a big payday. That's not to say that Apple doesn't suggest tweaks and, and particular direction and work with suppliers. We we've heard that they may be working with a company that works on some um, 3D, um, sorry, some inductive charging and wireless charging. But um, that's coming out of that company, and Apple subsequently approaches them, not the other way around. It's like winning the jackpot when Apple says, "You know what? We're going to use your next next technology in our phone," and all of a sudden. Someone's been made a billionaire. Alex Webb, thank you so much for joining us. Alex Webb is a tech reporter for Bloomberg News coming to us from our Bloomberg 960 studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.